Hello and welcome to the UW Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. I'm a fellow at the Forum. In this episode, we will discuss the recent ban of President Trump uh, on Twitter and the implications of this development for free speech as well as future regulation of technology companies and the legal environment they operate within. I am joined today by Victor Minaldo, Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Forum. Hello, Victor. Hi. Also, we're excited to welcome our special guest for this episode, Roddy Lindsay. Roddy is the co-founder of Hustle, a messaging platform that is used widely in politics, higher education, and the nonprofit sector. And Roddy is also an opinion columnist at The Information, where he has written on how to regulate social media companies in a way that enables free speech and the sharing of knowledge, but also faces up to the dangers of conspiracy theories and ideological radicalization online. Hello, Roddy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so guys, this had really been uh, quite the two weeks. On January 6th, a violent mob stormed the Capitol. President Trump has subsequently been impeached for his role in encouraging these violent actions. Twitter and several other social media companies have now moved to permanently remove President Trump from their services. And adding to the fallout of the violent events from last week, these uh, processes have now led to some questions over free speech and the role of technology companies in policing speech on their platforms. So I want to start this conversation by asking Victor, you and James Long have an op-ed that is forthcoming that is arguing that uh, banning Trump from Twitter does not harm free speech at all. Why do you think that is the case? Well, let me just qualify. At all is a very strong statement. So uh, <laughs> maybe we argue that. But rather than at all, our big idea is that, in fact, banning Trump is part and parcel of a framework that allows free speech to blossom. Now, we have other minor arguments about how President Trump is not really a proponent of free speech if you look at his actions. And uh, also, we clarify the legal distinction between uh, the government's infringement of speech, which is in the Constitution, obviously, as the First Amendment, versus what private companies can uh, do, and especially digital platforms. And we also go into the technical details of Section 230, the 1996 addendum, if you will, of the um, Telecommunications Act, which really set the stage for Twitter to do what it did, which is decide to boot President Trump out and suspend several accounts that have been basically spreading false conspiracy theories and some folks that are probably engaged in hate speech as well. So that's really the point of the op-ed. And I'm happy to get into any of the details there, but the punchline is booting Trump off of Twitter and Facebook and some other social media platforms actually will contribute to free speech. And the moderation activities that these tech platforms engage in on a regular basis are, in a sense, compatible with free speech. And the authors of that law and Section 230 that was their intended purpose. And I would argue generally they've achieved their purpose despite, and I think Roddy will go into this, a lot of negative spillovers and a lot of unforeseen uh, problems or maybe foreseen, but maybe not to the degree to which uh, they've come alive in terms of disinformation, in terms of hate speech, in terms of some of the other 
uh, uh, issues that we are being confronted with as a society today after the Capitol riots and, and in the lead up to them as well. Roddy, could you explain to our listeners uh, what Section 230 is and how it relates to uh, Twitter banning Trump from their services? Sure. So uh, Section 230 has been called, quote unquote, the 26 words that created the Internet. And it's not quite true because the Internet, of course, existed prior to 1996. But uh, it's important to kind of look at sort of environment of the Internet, particularly the legal environment before Section 230 was enacted and why it was enacted. And there's really two key cases, legal cases, that kind of caused Section 230 to be uh, enacted in Congress. Uh, and the first is a 1991 case, which is Cubby versus CompuServe. What, what this was about is, uh, for those of you old enough to remember the internet access providers in the, in the 90s, such as CompuServe, America Online, Prodigy, before the open web and web browsers were common. You fired up America Online and you had access to weather and chat and message boards. And that sort of was the internet experience for millions of people. I so, do actually remember that. <laughs> all, those, all those CDs that uh, we all picked up at CompUSA and those sorts of, of stores. So, so on CompuServe, um, there was a, a news forum that CompuServe had contracted out as sort of one of its content providers. And on this uh, newsletter, there was some content that was defamatory about this other newsletter from Cubby. Uh, and then Cubby went on and sued CompuServe and said, you know, this is, you're responsible for this defamation. And, and the, the district court ruled that CompuServe was not, in fact, liable because CompuServe didn't know about the contents of, of, this, of this newsletter. And so in that case, it was similar to a bookstore, which someone who manages a bookstore isn't going to read every single word of every book to make sure it's all you know, legal, legal speech. They're not the publisher of those books, and so they're thus are not liable for you know, anything defamatory that might be in them. So compare that to another case in 1995, which is Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy. That was a New York State Supreme Court case, again, on another one of these uh, internet service providers, uh, in this case, Prodigy, which hosted a message board. And on that message board, there was a user claimed that Stratton Oakmont, which is this financial services company, that they were committing fraud. And Stratton Oakmont sued Prodigy, claiming that, that this was, again, defamatory content. And Stratton Oakmont won, uh, and they won because they they pointed out that that Prodigy was actually engaging in moderation. So it did some uh, moderation of these of these message boards. Now it didn't it didn't moderate this particular message or these particular messages, but it uh, it had these content guidelines and it had these quote unquote board leaders that uh, were these moderators, and they use some other tools to find language, etc. So you had this paradox where if you didn't do any moderation, that you were not liable uh, for the speech of your users. But if you did engage in any kind of moderation, all of a sudden you were. Right. So as a, if you're an internet service provider in this environment, you know, why would you, you know, expose yourself to these massive lawsuits Mm -hmm. uh, by engaging in moderation. 
the incentives are that you shouldn't do any moderation. Of course, mm -hmm. that means that your message boards and in any place that there's user content is going to be full of, of toxic junk. Mm -hmm. So that was the environment uh, in, in 1996 that sort of prompted this action in Congress. And this action was to basically ch change the incentives so that, that these platforms should, you know, should not be liable for this, um, for this content, but also make sure that they, were, they weren't penalized. In fact, they were encouraged to clean up and moderate the speech that their users were contributing. And, and that's what's really in Section 230 enacted in 1996 with an overwhelming bi bipartisan uh, majority. That is still is the letter of the law today. And that is what has you know, created since then a huge industry of obviously social networks, but also just normal comment sections on websites, um, mm -hmm. on newspapers. Uh, all of that is newspapers and these bulletin boards and, and message boards can host this, this third party, this user content because of Section 230 and because they're not liable for the user uh, speech that, that's on there. Right. So it, the current, the, the prevailing interpretation of uh, Section 230 is that these companies do not have publisher liability. That's what you write in your piece. In what way are they then at all um, incentivized to, to moderate the content that there is being displayed on their platforms? Well, if you're in the business of a social network, you're in the business of creating a, a website where people find value, where people want to come and they can uh, engage with friends or find interesting content to consume. They don't want a place that's full of spam and uh, toxic speech. You know, if they, if they were to, if that's what your experience was using a, a, a website, um, you probably wouldn't go there anymore. So they have a huge incentive to make to make sure that um, these environments uh, on their website have high quality content uh, for everyone to consume and is you know is free of spam and all sort of stuff that we don't want. So you know that's that, and they are able to right. do that again because of because of Section Two Thirty. That makes sense. I feel like that's at least debatable when you look at the current state of Twitter. But um, I, I see I see what the um, what the thought is here, Victor. Well, so Nick, in what the idea is exactly as Roddy is intimating, you're not supposed to do everything you're not in the business of scrubbing everything you're in the business of enforcing your community standards and whatever you know the gist of your network is to the best of your abilities but it doesn't mean taking everything down right it, it means making a good faith effort right to take down child pornography and hate speech and scrubbing things and even deplatforming people who abuse the rights and privileges afforded to them by participating in the uh, in the digital platform. Am I right there, Roddy? It, it's not intended to, as you said before, it's not intended to empower them to be prodigy and moderate everything, right? It, it's selective. Yeah. I, I, the, you know, I'm not, I am not exactly familiar with how much moderation prodigy was or was not, was not doing. I mean, they were at least doing some. The social networks would prefer to do as little moderation as possible. You know, for one is, one is that they would like to have the um, to you know, to be as open a forum as possible uh, for the free exchange of ideas. That's very much kind of in the DNA of of these of these companies. They have certain legal obligations to remove or block content. Those those regulations you know are different on a country by country basis. So they're 
the things they moderate in Turkey and Saudi Arabia are going to be different than the, the speech that they moderate in the United States. But beyond their sort of legal obligations, they also have, you know, as you, as you said, community standards, which is really about for things that are not necessarily illegal, but are, do not contribute to uh, a healthy user experience. They reserve the right to moderate that content and block that content, uh, and they they use it. Um, and so, uh, it's it's very much a part of the value proposition of these social networks, these large social networks, is that is that they do a moderation. I mean, un, unmoderated forums, you know, since the days of Usenet, you know, are total. You know, you, you wouldn't want to spend any time there. It's it's all spam and uh, and junk and and all kinds of stuff that you, you know, normal people wouldn't want to experience it's not a good user experience so um you know very very much you know having having this moderation is a part of the user experience um that that they offer to their to their users all right thank you victor how has this uh, contributed to free speech what have been some of the benefits of these companies and the way that they've been able to operate um, after the implementation of section 230 well again let me just briefly summarize some of what roddy said not because he did a poor job just the opposite he's done a, a brilliant job of setting the table for us but let's just think through the steps here right if you fear civil liability, right, for defamation, libel, or negligence, you're going to be incredibly cautious. Anytime a disgruntled party claims that they were harmed or they don't like something that was posted by another user, you're going to take it down because you don't want to get sued. And if you're not legally responsible for that stuff, and the person who is, is the, the user or the, or, or the third party, then more speech will flourish. Uh, less speech will be chilled, right? And at least theoretically, and Roddy, the rubber meets the road with what Roddy tells us about the industry, at least theoretically, you exercise discretion and you have commercial incentives to do so when removing misinformation, policing platform manipulation, and curbing cyberbullying, right? But the idea then is, well, if the third parties are liable, they're going to decide for themselves what to do, what to write. And, and there, there will be cultural norms. There, there will be their own conscience. Uh, there will be community standards that will uh, limit, that will process what they say, right? And if you think about what's happened is the modern commercial internet with not only the big uh, digital platforms, but smaller ones like what Roddy's been able to do. And a lot of the bad stuff we know about, uh, uh, we know about it more than we wish, perhaps, uh, misinformation, conspiracy uh, theories and the like. But a lot of the good stuff, uh, I think, has been downplayed a bit since President Trump uh, um, got to power. But it, let's just think of the track record, even in the 2020 elections. There was a vibrant political ecosystem uh, during the elections, uh, not all of it good, but some of it very good. We had a lot of true information about candidates, about uh, the voting process, about how the Electoral College works, a lot of uh, real news and, and fact checking uh, that corrected misinformation about election integrity. The reason why this uh, 
crazy conspiracy theory about the election being being stolen has been widely uh, discredited and debunked is because a lot of folks have uh, gathered evidence, shared evidence, and and been privy to it on the internet. Another thing I would say is that, um, although the algorithms that are used by uh, social media might, and there's mixed evidence for this, and I'll let Roddy speak to this, they might accentuate and more effectively spread lies and conspiracy theories, propaganda, and what have you. If you think about the way that populists and dictators and um, miscreant politicians spread fake news, conspiracy theories, and propaganda before the internet and before Section 230, there was no way to counteract what they did because they were able to control the airwaves and use censorship and and repression in a centralized way to stifle any dissent. So let's think about this, for example. First of all, lying, conspiracy, demagoguery is as old as politics, right? The written word, um, if you go back to uh, language written in hieroglyphics or, or cuneiform or um, symbolic language, that was the first vehicle to spread lies, to spread prop- propaganda, even conspiracy theories. And if you think of modern uh, media, think about Mussolini and Hitler, who used the radio and film after World War II and obviously uh, during, uh, sorry, after World War I as they rose to power and obviously during World War II in the throes of uh, 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 war. Perón used the radio and television to incite violence, just like Mussolini and Hitler uh, and propaganda. Milosevic, television uh, uh, and, and radio as well, but television was one of the primary ways in Serbia for him to rile people up, uh, for him to incite riots and mobs and genocide. And Rwanda's Hutu power is notorious for using the radio to spread hate speech and for stoking some of the violence or a lot of the violence, if not stoking the genocide itself, the, the violence that led up to the genocide, if not the genocide itself. Uh, and if you think about January 6th, what happened? President Trump and Rudy Giuliani and some other populists got up on the hustings and they delivered a speech in flesh and, and, and bone uh, uh, that incited a, a mob to uh, uh, insurrection against the Capitol, right? And and so it's not necessarily the internet that's to blame here, Section 230. And if anything, I'm being a bit selective and you'd have to run analyses empirically that are more systematic and satisfactory, but at least the stylized facts and the logic of the incentives are such that it does seem that the internet can afford a counterweight. And for all the fake news that is spread, once there's learning and uh, improvement and optimization, you can discredit fake news and you can find a way to fact check as well and hold politicians accountable. And I would say that if you look at the history of populism, of totalitarianism, or just tin pot dictatorship, uh, you see evidence of lying, of conspiracy theory, of misinformation going unchecked. So there's the hope with better regulation or maybe even a private uh, voluntary endeavor between the tech platforms to come up with better community standards or to coordinate their moderation that you could improve upon some of these problems. Now, maybe I'm being Pollyannish and maybe Roddy will correct me and obviously refine some of what I'm saying, but 
I do think it's a danger to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just look at all the bad without the good, right? To me, and, and something we stress on the forum is always to conduct empirical analysis to look at what's true and then cost-benefit analysis to see, well, does the weight of the evidence suggest that maybe Section 230 promotes free speech and the selective moderation has worked despite a lot of the shortcomings, obviously, that we're all aware of today? Thank you, Victor. Roddy, I think I'm a little bit too young, and especially people who are a little bit younger than me, I think are uh, too young to appreciate how much of a, or a lot of the initial impetus from of, of the internet came out of an activist community, right? That like a, a big part of the idea of the internet was really to connect people to be able to circumvent the monopoly on information that has been, um, yeah, a reality for for um, for a long time in many places of the world that um, Victor describes. And it seems that the consensus has been at the very least since 2016 in a lot of places that this has somehow dramatically failed, right? That the internet now may not be controlled by one centralized authority, but now, you know, all the floodgates are open and all the crackpots have a huge platform. Victor is qualifying this and says, you know what, there's also a lot of good information. Roddy, can you bring some evidence to bear on this question? Like how big of an issue is this really? Does social media or the internet really have a unique fake news conspiracy problem? And if so, where does it come from? I think there's there's definitely something to that. Um, and again, I, I sort of hearken back and I, just, I, I see things through slightly maybe rose-colored glasses because I grew up in the kind of 90s internet uh, of, you know, Telnet and GeoCities and, you know, people hosting their own web pages and Usenet. And there was definitely, you know, a sort of, it, it felt like, you know, you were in this sort of very fresh, very exciting uh, new world where again, the, the, the rules of, of mass media through TV and radio, you know, didn't apply. People chatting on, on telnet or posting on Usenet boards, um, you know, there was, it was liberating uh, from those, from the kind of classic um, yeah. you know, mass media. And uh, certainly, we've we've gotten away from there, but I, I, I do pin a lot of the blame um, on uh, algorithmic algorithmic amplification, mm -hmm. which I think has very much um, kind of skewed the type of speech that is consumed, very much in favor of uh, the most you know inflammatory, uh, clickbaity sort of content. And the, the reason is that there's, uh, is that people pay attention to, to this, um, this type of content more than they do sort of bland posts and, and bland articles. Um, and so those articles get more eyeballs, which gets more clicks, which drive more ad revenue for uh, whoever's hosting it, et cetera. So it becomes this, uh, this, this feedback loop, which is difficult to get out of. Could you, sorry, could you explain exactly what uh, algorithmic amplification is, how it works, and when uh, companies started engaging in this practice? Sure. So, um, you know, if, if you're uh, operating Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or any of these um, social networking sites uh, and, and a user logs in and you want to show them some, some relevant content, you essentially have to find... Um, out of the hundreds or thousands or 
potentially hundreds of thousands of millions of potential uh, bits of content that you could show to them. That could be you know, your posts your friends made or posts that your, uh, your followers or the people that you follow made on Twitter or posts that they liked. You know, there's all this potential, this whole universe of potential content that they could show you. And they have to, at the end of the day, choose, you know, 10 posts or 20 posts or 30 posts or whatever it is to show to you. And uh, the way that they decide is through an algorithm that, for instance, will evaluate, you know, how close is your friendship to the person that you know, posted this photo or how many followers does this uh, person have uh, on, on Twitter or how many likes or shares has this piece of content received in the five minutes that it was posted. Um, if it got you know, hundreds of thousands compared to a post that had zero, the algorithm is probably more likely to show you that, that content that got a lot of reactions because it's probably more interesting to you and you're more likely to click it and engage with it. Um, so, so that's, and so, and so that, uh, you know, that, that algorithmic amplification, uh, Facebook introduced it in 2006 uh, with its newsfeed, which was, which was revolutionary at the time. And uh, people you know, think that Facebook was, people associate newsfeed very closely with Facebook, but it's important to remember that, you know, for two and a half years, Facebook had been around um, on college social networks and high schools and was extremely popular, um, even without any kind of algorithmic amplification. There was no news feed, but people could just go and browse from page to page, uh, find groups um, on, on their network and uh, their college network. And so there was there was plenty of uh, appeal of these social networks before algorithmic amplification. Uh, once news feed was introduced. Um, all of a sudden, there was very different sort of incentives to uh, produce content that, in, in order to to receive um, you know, likes and shares and, and comments, um, that over time has really kind of warped. I think the um, warped the speech that we consume. That again tends to be. Uh, highly polarized, very often sexualized uh, content that again is is the most uh, titillating to our, uh, our, our our lizard brain. Um, uh, so you know i've I've argued that we're having these debates about speech uh, today in a way that we weren't having them you know fifteen or twenty years ago. Because of, of algorithmic amplification, and mm -hmm. that it's it's um, you know, we're talking about all these bad things, all, all the negatives about these social networks, um, because of the information environment that they've created, and, and so I'm sort of advocating a return to the old internet, if you will, where people had their own pages, their own websites, their own blogs, and that uh, consuming that information required a certain amount of intentionality on the part of the consumer, whether that's right. navigating to a blog or clicking a particular profile, um, as opposed to sort of sitting back and letting the algorithm put information in front of you that you didn't necessarily intend to consume. 
And so we see stats, for instance, in 2016, there was a study that 60% of the visits, is either the visits or the new memberships of extremist groups on Facebook was because of Facebook's recommendation algorithm. <laughs> right, okay. Um, that to me is, is an alarming uh, statistic. You know, it's not like toxic speech is not novel to, to social networks, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, in, back in, use, in the Usenet days, there was plenty of toxic speech, but because it required uh, so much intentionality to navigate to a certain topic and consume those posts, um, th- those niche, you know, extreme groups stayed niche. There was no, uh, there was no mechanism to to make them mainstream. And, and that's the difference is that these algorithms have, have made it very easy for these, these sort of niche interests or niche, uh, you call them conspiracy theories to make it to a very mainstream audience mm. in a very, very short period of time. And so that's why I think these algorithms are dangerous. Frankly, as a data scientist, I, I don't think that, that there are mechanisms in place um, to to make sure to to ensure that you know, these algorithms do uh, are, are acting in, in the in the public in, in the public interest, the interests of public health, etc. Uh, I just think we we just don't know enough about their effects and how they work. Uh, so I think it's it's time, and others have advocated for this uh, as well. But at least a moratorium, if not an outright ban, on uh, algorithmic amplification of of content. Um, until there's a much deeper understanding of uh, of its impact. Right. Yeah. If there's stories about the uh, YouTube recommendation function, which I'm assuming that's the same uh, process, right? Uh, that it's there's, there's this sliding scale from uh, sort of like conservative right wing content, and then very quickly you get recommended videos that are sort of on the uh, what's called the alt light, which is one step before the alt right, apparently. And uh, so you get further and further into more and more extreme content through this recommendation mechanism that sort of cues, um, yeah, just one exaggeration after the next. Yeah, I think YouTube, uh, I think is is gets uh, does not get as much attention as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, not only in the radicalization of the right here in the U.S., but also places like Brazil, where um, you know, Bolsonaro was went from sort of a fringe figure to uh, the president, and in many ways because of the the radicalization uh, that took place with, you know, within YouTube in, in in Brazil. So there's you know, so a lot of this has kind of gone unreported. But uh, you know, as as folks dig in, we're finding more and more examples of of the role that these algorithms have played uh, in this this political radicalization. Yeah, I think that's plausible. Roddy, so what do you suggest, what would be a step to reduce this or yeah, maybe not outlaw, but or what would be the mechanism to counter this issue of algorithmic amplification? Well, I think, uh, I mean, it has to be, most likely have to be an act of Congress. I think a standalone, standalone legislation that, that targets algorithmic amplification specifically, I think would be the best thing. I also think there's a tremendous amount of political pressure from both sides to do quote unquote do something about section 230 if if section 230 needs to be touched 
then uh, there's a bill uh, from Anna Eshoo and uh, Tom Malinowski from the last Congress that uh, I think is a pretty well-targeted bill that removes some of the Section 230 protections for content that is algorithmically amplified, mm-hmm. um, applied, applying it only to very large um, companies. That I think is a good starting place for where this regulation could go. There's another path for it to happen in the courts, and uh, in the op-ed and the information a few months back, Clarence Thomas, uh, Justice Thomas, has implied that there could be a path to put some sort of distributor liability uh, on social networks mm-hmm. for this for certain content. I think if they if the Supreme Court were to take the view, and by the way, 230 has never been challenged in the Supreme Court, but if the Supreme Court did look at it and decided that there was in fact some distributor liability in in an internet context, distribution meant algorithm amplification, maybe there's a path to to achieve the same ends in the courts. I I don't don't think that would be the preferable way to go. I think Mm -hmm. a a standalone bill in Congress uh, should be the way, but um, there might be some different different ways to get there. Victor, you said earlier that uh, the internet, in many ways, uh, sort of took control over information away from, uh, yes, centralized public authorities. Now, with the recent ban of Twitter, uh, like Twitter banning President Trump, as well as a lot of other um, social media companies, hasn't the power now not significantly shifted into the hands of private actors? Don't they now control the airwaves? And does that not pose unique political challenges in its own right? Well, let me speak about algorithmic amplification first. And here's where Roddy and I might disagree, not necessarily our conclusions, because I, I'm still open-minded about it, and I think Roddy is as well. But I don't know what conclusion to draw for the following two reasons about whether algorithmic amplification is actually the culprit of some of the problems. Although it seems prima facie obvious, right? What's radicalizing people? The fact that they're on YouTube and they keep getting fed stronger and stronger versions of the drug and they become desensitized to the previous version, right? Or maybe they're trying new drugs. I'm using an analogy, obviously, uh, that titillate their reptilian brain and they go down rabbit holes they otherwise would not, right? That's a very strong causal statement about the world, and I would just want more evidence as a researcher, not necessarily a policymaker that might be more risk-averse or think about the public good and and, uh, be just cautious that, you know, if there's even a a hint that this is what's inducing radicalism or terrorism or insurrection, then we've got to do something about it, nip it in the bud. As a researcher, I would just like to get a more satisfactory answer, right, Uh, in terms of uh, the right counterfactually motivated research design to figure out, is that what's happening? Or is there a certain type of person that seeks algorithmic amplification on bad things? Now, let me tell you my story on the amplification. As a teacher, as a scholar, as a researcher, and what have you, I've learned a lot from it because I get fed things that nourish my mind, like things I wouldn't have thought of. Uh, about mm-hmm. all manner of topics, right? So there is a, a, another side to it where the artificial intelligence is actually complementing uh, uh, things I know or, or showing me things I, I have no idea about and leading me to learn new things. Now, maybe I'm a minority and maybe most folks abuse it or, or are not interested in, in the Apollonian part of it. They're, they're interested in the Dionysian part, the reptilian part, Roddy mentioned, right? 
And because of some behavioral bugs, if not features in the human brain or, or in the way we are, we just can't help ourselves. And we're attracted to the opioid grade bad stuff, right? Sure. But uh, as a causal matter, then I'll talk about the the political reason I'm circumspect. But go ahead, Roddy. Say what. what you know. I was going to say I, I think it's a really good point. And the the Apollonia and the, the Dionysian, as you will, um, or the what I call the the prefrontal or the amygdalic sort of reactions uh, to to content. I think you're right that there is there is certainly value there is certainly value in content that makes you think that exposes you to a new perspective and that's you know those are good those are good things that algorithms uh, can do. The problem is if you're a data scientist you know trying to design these algorithms it's very difficult to 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 get that data that says you know what this this piece of content you know, was a, a great, you know, it really made me think hard about this, you know, this topic or really, you know, really activated my prefrontal cortex, if you will. It's, it's very difficult to, to collect that type of information. You know, it's much easier to look at clicks and comments and reshares, which all of which are much more likely to, to be associated with the, you know, the titillating content. Um, there's a very interesting report that came out before the election about how, or maybe it was right after the election, but about how some folks at Facebook, some engineers had designed a different newsfeed algorithm that uh, was effectively trying to predict whether a piece of content would, was good or bad for the world, uh, which is very kind of obviously high level, uh, high level concept. And they got that information by uh, running surveys. I think it's a very interesting um, approach to algorithm design that I am absolutely in favor of. The difficulty is, of course, is really that sort of algorithm is really only available to companies that have, you know, can afford to run these, these massive surveys, which cost a lot of money and, and occupy ad slots and all that. So I, I'm willing to you know, say that there, there are definitely short of an of a entire, entire ban. There are, I, be, I believe, specific ways in which these algorithms could be better designed to account for, for, for what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Roddy, if I understand your op-ed correctly, as well as the opinion by, by Justice Thomas that you were citing, um, the, the idea here is really to say that, okay, well, t- Section 230 might absolve these companies from publisher liability, but not necessarily from distributor liability. That's what you were mentioning earlier, right? There's no, it a difference. does as well, right, Roddy? It does as well from distributor liability, right? Well, that's the um, that, that's what Justice Thomas is is sort of pointing out that everyone there's a early Section 230 case there on versus America Online that that most courts have sort of taken as 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 the as the reason why there's no di- uh, distributor liability. But Justice Thomas is saying, well, hang on, there's nothing in Section 230 that says anything about distributor liability. Um, maybe we should look at it. So there, there's some, and there's, there's, you know, certainly uh, opposing views on Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas's comments, but it's so it's I'd say it's it's unclear. Right, but I, I would say that this might be one way to get some leverage on this question, right? That if you say, okay, well, um, it it is one act to say we are a platform where you can um, voice your opinions, right? And if your opinions are in some way illegal, then you are liable for whatever you say, right? 
But as soon as we amplify those things algorithmically, then we're engaging in a different legal act. So that might be one way where you can say, okay, well, now let's internalize some of the potential costs that uh, are imposed on society by saying, okay, well, for some of the content that you are amplifying through algorithms, you can be made liable, right? If it is, um, I don't know, something like, I don't know, let's take the example of, of, of some kinds of hate speech. Wouldn't that be one way to get some leverage on this issue? Well, I think so. You know, if, 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 if these platforms uh, are going to incur some liability by applying an, an algorithm, uh, algorithmic boost to it, then uh, that should achieve the ends, the, um, the, the result of significantly curbing the, their use of these algorithms, or if they do employ it, you know, making sure that it is the content that they are distributing with these algorithms is, you know, they know to be content that they've reviewed or, or you know, editorialized, yeah. um, similar to how, you know, the New York Times would, would uh, editorialize the, the posts on their, on their homepage or on their newspaper. That makes sense. Victor, you had a point earlier before we interrupted you. No, I like the direction you went in, which is if there, this is, suppose this is a negative externality, right? Uh, my own view, again, as a political economist, as a researcher, not as a policymaker, but I, obviously I think policymakers should listen to me. Uh, maybe I'm arrogant and delusional. Uh, I hope not. Uh, is uh, First, we'd have to measure if it's true, right? A, a, and all evidence seems to suggest it is, but I guess I'm just always cautious and conservative small c, and I just want to calibrate it. I want the actual causal effect, right? And I want to then add it up and figure out the, the cost benefit. But suppose we're in that world, right? We've done the math uh, and we've run the empirical analyses. And in fact, yes, this is a negative externality and it's outweighing the positive benefits, right? Not only privately to consumers, uh, but also the spillovers that are positive. Like every time I learn about ancient Greece or like, more about uh, World War II or about, uh, I don't know, whatever pet topic I, I'm working on through the algorithmic amplification that might have a, a, a knock-on effect that's very positive for my students and for the folks that, I, that listen to me in terms of the research I pump out, writing, speaking on this podcast, what have you. Uh, so, but then the question is exactly what you said, Nick, you hit it on the head. And I think Roddy built very well on what you said. How do you then get the folks that are generating the negative externality to internalize it? And there are several parties here. It's not only the distributor, it's the consumer as well. One way to have the, them internalize the externality, and this sounds old fashioned and it might sound totally out of left field here, but one way is civic education and, and better education, right? We should produce better citizens, more informed citizens, maybe citizens that realize there's a lot of things out there that harm them and that they should be empowered through education, through civic uh, uh, associations, through the government subsidies. You know, this isn't a left or right thing. This is a optimizing thing empowered to be very smart consumers like when folks used to smoke cigarettes like a chimney or when folks used to drink and drive or, or when folks uh, used to beat their kids right obviously criminal prosecution and civil liability was important but so were educational campaigns so was civic society civil society pardon so was people being better people right and being 
more moral and, and the government subsidizes that obviously through the education system and through public health and through all kinds of other things, even informational campaigns, right? And really corny uh, commercials about don't drink and drive that I think a lot of the evidence shows they did have an effect or, or educational campaigns about the um, health effects of cigarette smoke, the adverse effects. So I think it's a complicated issue. And I think command and control can work, and it often does, but it's not always the best policy. And with something so pernicious and insidious and so unruly, like the effect this has, a mixed strategy might work, right? Or, or if we are going to use the government, we should have a debate, I feel, between command and control versus a, a tax or a fee. Uh, a command and control being just to outright ban something versus taxing something and increasing the price of, of doing it and, and internalizing it that way. Or the third option is to allocate property rights. And, and therefore, by doing something like that, you reduce the harm uh, uh, as well. I don't know the answer. I'm agnostic. I, it might be that this is exactly a command and control situation where you want to ban something outright. And I'd be open to, to hearing about that. But I think we're all onto something in this conversation about we should have a debate about whether it's bad, how bad it is, the magnitude, and whether it outweighs the benefits. And if that's the case, what is the best regulatory approach? And it could be a mix of several different things, also involving private actors and involving civil society and involving education, public health, and a bunch of other actors or, or parties that are stakeholders. I definitely like the idea of the three of us uh, making some corny advertisements to warn people about online radicalization. I think that's my preferred way to go here. Uh, I don't know about you guys. No, I, I actually I don't think I actually think that we disagree. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of media literacy. I think what groups like the Stanford History Education Group are doing is awesome. You know, certainly um, there needs to be more um, education at, from a young age on. Uh, on all these issues, on you know falsifiable hypotheses, on lying with data visualizations, you know, pink slime newspapers. I mean, none of this, none of these issues really, really existed ten or twenty years ago. So there totally needs to be a, a rethinking of you know how we educate people, both children and adults, uh, on these issues to make them more resilient against uh, misinformation um, and all the cornucopia of ways that um, malignant actors can put bad information into people's, uh, in front of people's eyes. So, and, you know, I think in terms of whether it should be a ban or a moratorium, I mean, I guess at this point, I'm kind of like, well, why not? Like, well, why not at least like a moratorium for a year or two? <laughs> and like, let's see how it goes. Like, let's see if we collectively prefer that, you know, information environment uh, to what was there before. My guess is a lot of the worst stuff is going to be severely curtailed and we're not going to miss, you know, it's, it's hard to prove like, well, yeah, maybe there were some great, interesting articles that I, I missed, otherwise missed, but, you know, we have a really great way to surface interesting content and uh, we have great ways to do that. We have private recommendations on private channels from friends and family. We have uh, editors and, and at newspapers, other media outlets uh, to that, that select that information. You know, those things are, are sort of tried and true. So 
I guess what I'm saying is, yes, maybe from a, a, a scientific perspective, a research perspective, we don't know exactly what the specific role of these algorithms is, but it appears to be quite bad. And so why don't we just turn it off and do some more research for a couple of years until we know more? Um, that seems to be, uh, I think, a, a, a reasonable uh, reaction at this point. But you know, a moratorium would be probably more difficult than, than uh, a law in Congress. But you can also repeal uh, bad laws. So uh, I think we should try it and, and see how it goes. Well, you know, maybe agree to disagree on that. And again, I just feel a moratorium might be abused in certain ways in that once there's a moratorium, it might be difficult to get back to the status quo, if the status quo could have used just a few at the margin uh, improvements, right? Like, let's say, uh, the Surgeon General warnings on cigarettes and the or don't drink and drive campaigns and the like, but it could very well be, right? I mean, as more solid data and knowledge comes out, I could see myself changing my mind on this. I guess my prime objective is more about just learning more and thinking about regulation in a smart way, which is command and control is one thing, and it might be the best thing here, but there are other alternatives that have worked, let's say, for carbon. Uh, rather than banning cars, we could have a carbon tax, or we could have a cap-and-trade program. Nick is probably bored to tears as to hearing me champion these two alternatives to uh, banning air travel, for example, in, in that you are more efficiently able to get to the same or even a better outcome by doing things like that. And it could be that I'm just failing to see the how this analogy fits in with something like toxic information or things that radicalize you or an algorithm run amok, right? But well, if you don't mind, Nick, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I mean, there, there is also the option of quality standards, right? And um, I think you, you might not categorize them as distri distributors or publishers, right? But holding uh, some of these companies accountable to some extent for the quality of information that they disseminate um, in some way, and I understand that this process is going to be very messy and probably not fail-safe or for sure not fail-safe, but I think that that's most likely going to be part of a solution. Here's, here's maybe the difference. When it comes to something like smoking cigarettes or air pollution, you know, th those are... are fairly innocuous areas for the government to get into. When it comes to you know, speech, you know, could you imagine California publishing you know, speech quality standards for social media companies? Or you know, the federal government doing a, a public service campaign, you know, beware of fake news. You know, I think it gets into really, really tricky First Amendment issues. And I, 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 think, it's, I think it's quite different um, from public, you know, public health uh, or you know, environmental standards and things like that. Uh, so I, I, I would be very, very wary of those sorts of approaches where there's, you know, some governmental agency that's really deciding, you know, that's really in the business of deciding, you know, what's, what's good speech, what's bad speech. And, 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 and again, I think this, there's been such a reaction, getting back to the, the events of the last two weeks, I think there's been this, this very, um, strong reaction to what the platforms have done um, because you know they do they do have this this great power to to, to control you know the actors on their system um, and who's you know who, who can speak and who cannot but I think again if there's a way to make it so they 
really don't have to, where, where they're not as, they don't need to put their finger on the scale so much um, and have these very weighty decisions, you know, all the time. I think that would, that would uh, lead to a healthier environment. Nick, would you mind if we pivot to the demand side reasons for misinformation, conspiracy theories, and the like, uh, even imagining a world where there is no algorithmic amplification, the structural conditions are there driving the demand. I'd go back to Mussolini, Hitler, Perón, Milosevic, Rwanda's Hutu power, right? Or is that too off uh, uh, base here? I mean, I think it's a it's a valid interjection, right? To say, well, people having weird ideas, uh, disseminating them, or um, very radical ideas that they disseminate, this is not new. It's unfair, or it's just ahistorical to claim that this is a uniquely or uh, especially a social media or internet phenomenon, right? This has existed for a long time. Um, it might be that there's some unique variables about social media and the internet that make this into a slightly different problem but um this kind of speech or ideas like that won't disappear just because we tweak some algorithms sure yeah i mean I, there's a uh I, for, I forget where i read it but someone made the distinction between free speech and free reach right and i think it's it's in this debate i think it's important to kind of highlight the difference you know allowing people to speak allowing the people to host you know their crazy ideas or whatever they want to say, you know, getting those ideas out there is, is certainly a very, is val is extremely valuable. And so it's important that there are, there are places and the internet is sort of designed for this de decentralized hosting of content for people to, to introduce these new set, new ideas, like about, you know, Martin Luther or plenty of like the ideas that we take for granted today, you know, were revolutionary. Uh, when they started oh, the civil rights so, movement, right? yeah. civil rights movement, exactly. So it's important that that there are the forums for them for those ideas to to percolate. But I don't think is that there there should be the idea of free reach that these ideas necessarily have to have. There's some obligation on the parts of uh, these companies to distribute that information. Uh, I, I don't think well, it certainly doesn't exist. There's no regulatory requirement for them to distribute it, but I don't think this necessarily society benefits from having this very fast dissemination of these sort of fringe ideas. I think we can we can encourage free speech, but uh, if we can clamp down on some of the fast reach and the viral reach of of that speech, I think that overall that will lead to a, a healthier environment. Fair enough. Victor, what do you think? Well, let me end by saying a few things, if you don't mind, and I'll talk a bit about the demand side stuff. First of all, I want to make clear that the digital platforms did not threaten free speech by flagging Trump's untrue posts about election fraud uh, after the election, or even in the lead up, he was preempting it, uh, maybe realizing he would lose or anticipating it was highly probable, and later banning him uh, due to the glorification of violence or the stoking of further uh, uh, riots or insurrection. That was well within the purview of the First Amendment. As Roddy said, they're not obligated to share speech that is uh, illegal. And, and that kind of speech is a crime under U.S. law to conspire for sedition and insurrection. Um, and the other thing I would say is just because Trump says something doesn't mean that it's a conservative view or that it to censor it or to um, to put a warning on it is um, a censorship against conservatives. Right. Um he might, in the capacity as a demagogue, be saying things that rile people up to hate and violence. That's not conservative. That's not 
anything on the ideological spectrum, right? So I, I think just these points of logic and these points of definition are important, right? Another thing I would say about President Trump, if you look at his track record, he, out of one side of his mouth, is a um, champion of free speech when he's in trouble and he needs to use that as a canard or a cover. But on the other side, he attacks the media. Uh, he speaks out of the other side of his mouth by attacking the media. Anybody that dares criticize him or even ask tough questions. And if you look at his track record as a politician, a candidate, and as the president, um, he was anathema to any opinion that he didn't like and is not a proponent of a well-informed citizenry and the cultivation of deliberation, debate, and the things that are very important to free speech that the framers of the Constitution uh, discussed and that the philosophers of the Enlightenment had in mind when, when you think about the ideas uh, uh, that uh, the deeper ideas or the deeper foundation that supports free speech. Uh, the interest in the truth and listening in good faith to your critics and having an open-ended debate, that's as much free speech as the ability to say things, right? So I think that's very important that free speech isn't just a one-way road. There's it, It's a highway with many lanes uh, with drivers driving in different directions, and it takes folks uh, coordinating at stop signs, right? A and letting other folks have the right of way. Uh, it's not just about an aggressive, virulent, um, I don't know, uh, throwing up whatever's in your mind. That's not the idea of free speech as a broader idea. A and, and the constitution and the regulations around free speech, including section 230, are nourished by the deeper philosophical, ideological, and even public policy objectives, right? Uh, and then let me say something, if you don't mind, Nick, does it make sense about the demand side stuff? Please, yeah, go ahead. Think about what motivated Timothy McVeigh to believe in conspiracy theories and to blow up a, I, I believe it was a hospital, or no, sorry, it wasn't a hospital, it was a Veterans Administration building in Oklahoma City with a childcare unit with several children who died. I believe there were north of 250 people who died. I might stand be uh, uh, stand corrected on my facts there, but you know this was before the internet as it exists today, right? Or, or why did people believe Mussolini's lies and his conspiracy theories, and obviously Hitler's lies, uh, uh, conspiracy theories, uh, anti-Semitism, and his uh, hate, his rage, his imperialism, all the terrible things he did, not only for his people and Germany, but for society, for, sorry, for uh, the international uh, society, for the rest of the world, right? And I think this goes to a deeper issue of what drives the desire for this, whether there's algorithmic amplification or not. And, and might we create, by banning it, let's suppose we ban it, an alternative way in which this, this uh, is supercharged, right? Um, and I think one of the important things is the loss of a civic culture of deliberation, of forbearance, of mutual tolerance, of, and of respect in the public sphere by politicians, you know, the leaders. Think about Newt Gingrich with the conservative revolution or the uh, revolution he supposedly led uh, when they won the House back. Uh, and I believe it could have been the Senate as well in 1994, right, during the midterms after President Clinton was elected, right? Or just the debauchery of our speech, of our respect for each other, of the public square, not only on the internet, but everywhere else, on talk radio, 
conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones before he was on the spreading this stuff, right? I think the demand side stuff is part of it as well. Not only politicians sowing division and hate and despair and, and lies, but in a very complicated world that's changing at a very rapid clip where there's a lot of uncertainty, where maybe people are, are becoming unemployed and they can't find new jobs, where there's a lot of creative destruction, not only economically, but politically and socially, there might be a hunger for this. And I'm not the first to say this. I'm channeling sociologists, historians, and political scientists, right? So I'm not by any way absolving companies of creating negative externalities if they in fact are. And I'm not against some of the ideas that Roddy put forth about moratoriums or even bans if, if it's so bad and terrible and, and the uh, negatives far outweigh the positives. Um, both individually and socially. But I would say if we don't deal with the underlying demand side stuff, there might be unforeseen threats uh, to the social order, to equality, to harmony between people of different ethnicities and races that we don't expect, right? If it's not supercharged by artificial intelligence, it'll be supercharged by something else. And if you think of the historical examples of fascism or of just strongman dictators or totalitarianism, if you think communism, and some of their, their conspiracy theories, this stuff just seems to be a fixture of the modern world. They're not what came before modernity. And I would hate to lose the focus on that as well. And again, that's going to necessitate a lot of research. Maybe Roddy and his knowledge and the people he knows his network can help. Folks in academia like you and I, Nick, can help. Historians can help. But I think the the jury's still out. It's very complicated. And for all the supply side stuff, we might think of the demand side stuff might be equally important, if not more powerful. And I think understanding that uh, is one of the key challenges going forward for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think, Victor, you're completely right in that, you know, I'm not an American politics scholar, right? But I mean, I've talked to enough of them to to be able to tell you that, they, they, I mean, for the longest time in the United States, there has been a significant number of people who are anti-liberal, anti-democratic, yeah, that are completely unwilling to to, to live under the, the, the law of the United States, right? And, and, and periodically, some of them engage in domestic terrorism. So there's a lot of continuity here. And I think we would be making a mistake to now lay all of that at the at the feet of social media companies, right? Which may may or may not have accelerated some of the recent um, developments, right? But I was certainly not the only ones to blame. Roddy, do you, do you have any closing remarks? No, I think uh, this has been a very fascinating, illuminating conversation. Thank you for uh, including me uh, in this debate, and hopefully uh, we can do it again uh, some sometime in the future. Yeah, we We'd would love, love that, that. Roddy, be careful what you say. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely take maybe after, up on maybe that. Maybe after we know the, uh, the answers to all these questions, we can uh, continue. <laughs> At minimum, yeah. Thank you so much for being on. It was great. Roddy, I learned a lot. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, neither free nor fair, which 
which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.